Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. It would be nice to believe that with our reading of Hebrews 12, 22 through 29, the reading of Psalm 122, and the singing of the five hymns that were chosen this morning, we could just keep on singing that everyone would have enough understanding that the true Zion, the true Jerusalem, the true city is in heaven and it is spiritual. It is not on earth, nor is it carnal and natural. However, because we need to be taught and established in this truth, I want to preach to you both sermons today about the true Israel of God. Now in Galatians chapter 6, we have an interesting expression used by the apostle that will open this subject for us. Galatians 6 and the 16th verse, right near the end of the book of the Galatians. The apostle said, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Amen. Upon the Israel of God. Today I want to teach you about the Israel of God. These words imply that there is another Israel that is not of God. But I want you to be established in the Israel of God. Because if you are not, you are going to miss the message of the Bible. As so many are missing today. The songs and hymns that we sang a few minutes ago, some of those are being sung in churches in this city. In those places where they're being sung... They're enjoying the sound of the words, but not the sense of the words. I hope that my faithful brethren here this morning, as we sang those hymns, appreciated the sense of the words. Because there's a spiritual sense in which those were written that we should have received them. Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God, implying that there is another Israel, which we'll see so clearly before the day's over. But now, if anyone maintains the Israel that is not the Israel of God, then he's guilty of something that Paul told Titus to beware of. And that's in Titus chapter 1 and verse 14, where Paul warned Titus to beware of Jewish fables. Jewish fables. The Jewish fable is that there is another Israel. The truth is, there is the Israel of God and no other Israel to be worried about. And we want to see that today. Look at Romans chapter 9, just to point this out more clearly. Romans chapter 9, and we'll take the second clause of this sixth verse. We'll be coming back to this verse, but I want you to see it right now to introduce our subject. Romans 9, 6, the second clause. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Do we need any more to point out to us that we have at least two Israels in the word of God? For they are not all the Israel of God, which are of the Israel in the flesh, is the way that verse is to be understood. Because if you go and read verses 7 and 8, it will tell you that what is under consideration are children of the flesh versus the children of God. They are not all true Israel, 
which are of national Israel. They are not all spiritual Israel, which are of physical Israel. There are two Israels, brethren, and we want to be established in it. Most professing believers today hold to a dispensational view of the Bible. I'm not going to bore you with a ten-sermon series refuting the claims of the dispensationalists. To be a dispensationalist means you chop the Bible up into seven dispensations and then have God dealing with men in different ways in each so-called dispensation. That's how most view the Bible today. They believe that the Bible is Jewish-oriented. They believe that Jesus Christ will come back before the tribulation, whatever that tribulation might be. But he's going to come back so that believers don't go through tribulation. He's also going to come back before the millennium, which is some so-called thousand-year reign on earth of a national Israel in the city of Jerusalem, Israel, with a rebuilt temple made with stones, with animal sacrifices on an altar made with stones. And any sarcasm that I have, I am sorry, it's impossible to read their statements in light of Scripture and not despise them for blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To think that those antichrists, haters of God, over there are going to renew sacrifices of animals on an altar in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is blasphemy. Right. It isn't just they're slightly mistaken. It is a satanic lie that arose in 1830 by a little Scottish lass, 15 years of age, named Margaret MacDonald, who was the first one that ever in the history of the world had dreamed of two comings of Jesus Christ with seven years between them. No one had ever heard of it in the annals of the Roman Catholic Church or of all Protestant denominations. And yet it is commonly believed and held to be the orthodox position today that not, there isn't a second coming of Jesus Christ in their scheme. There is a second and a third coming. He is going to come the second time, not to earth, only halfway. It's called coming for his saints. We will be yanked out of the world. That's why the popularity of the novels that are out there right now by Tim LaHaye and others, the Left Behind series, because of that doctrine, Jesus will come and yank us out of the world in a secret rapture. I know you can't find that either, but they they believe it. He'll yank us out of the world, and then for seven years there's going to be problems on the earth. The Antichrist will be revealed. Then he comes back again to earth. The third coming. And they call that coming with the saints. They call the second one coming for the saints. The third one coming with the saints. These things are not found in the Bible. Right. I am not going to deal straightly with prophecy t today. I want to deal with the true fulfillment of Israel so that you will see that the prophecies of the Bible are fulfilled in us, the church of Jesus Christ, and what Jesus Christ did for us and the heavenly kingdom that we are now part of. Amen. They believe that Jesus is going to restore national Israel, even though there's no real national Israel to restore, but they're going to restore national Israel to world preeminence. 
And we as Gentiles will be their servants during this so-called millennium. And he will sit on some poor pitiful throne in Jerusalem, Israel, with smoke ascending from animal sacrifices being burned. This idea of Bible interpretation wasn't known before 1830. Was not known. In 1830... A man named Irving and a man named Darby grabbed a hold of this little Scottish lass's fevered vision in between speaking in tongues and took it and promoted it. And a man named C.I. Schofield came along and took all of Darby's writings, plagiarized them and stuck them in his C.I. Schofield Bible, all within, around, on top of, beside and underneath the text of God's holy word, so that many today have a Bible that is half God and half man. And if you were to look at that, and I've got several copies I can show you, it's hard to decipher which is which. And Mr. Schofield loves to contradict the word of God. And I'll give you a few examples for your entertainment today, just to see. But it is widespread, widespread, of what we would consider conservative denominations. They all hold, the majority hold, to this Jewish-oriented, dispensational, pre-tribulationary return of Jesus Christ. Totally missing what the Bible, what the Lord has shown us from the Bible. And what before 1830, the vast majority of all Christians understood without even thinking or doing any reading or research. Common knowledge. Because when you were a martyr going to the stake, it was comforting to know that you were fulfilling Bible prophecy. Not that the real fulfillment of Bible prophecy was going to be some carnal, fleshly age in the future. This idea of Bible interpretation brings a lot of errors with it that, that confuse and steal from God's people the true glory of Jesus Christ and His church and the heavenly kingdom. They teach that the Bible is to be interpreted literally at any cost. It doesn't matter if you create an absurdity. It doesn't matter if you contradict yourself somewhere else. Interpret all prophecies literally. That is their rule. So when they see the moon turning to blood, you are, it's incredible. Obviously, the moon hasn't turned to blood yet, so obviously this prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. You've got to be kidding me. Do you know how infantile that is? Have they ever read the Old Testament where statements like that are given over and over and over and over and over again of God's overthrow of pagan governments? They teach a natural, carnal, earthly interpretation of the Bible rather than a spiritual, eternal, heavenly. What did the Apostle Paul say? Things that you can see are temporal. Things that you cannot see are eternal. The New Testament is that the spiritual is more important than the physical. Your spiritual birth is far more important than your physical birth. The heavenly Jerusalem, we just read it in Hebrews 12, is far more important than that earthly city. Oh, brethren, they they steal that from us. And so we look in the Bible as a carnal man looking for carnal things to fulfill the carnal fables of long-dead Jews. Incredible. 
They miss the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They don't even see any importance on it whatsoever in the New Testament because they take all the statements by Jesus Christ and His apostles about it and stick them way out in the future. They miss. One of the most glorious demonstrations of the inspiration of Scripture and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, they steal it right away from Him. He said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, and then shall the end come. Matthew 24, and that end came. That end came 1930 years ago because Jesus said all these things shall come to pass on this generation. That message that Jesus Christ is coming back to destroy the generation that killed him, which was preached in the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.40, was preached in the whole world so that the whole world could watch and see Jesus Christ is God and prophesied the future and look at his judgment. 1.1 million killed within the walls of that city where the delicate women ate their own children. Because they had said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ brought his blood to bear on that city. But they steal that away. They steal the New Testament from us. I can't give you an exhaustive study on this subject, but I'm going to give you enough And it's going to be spiritually oriented because I want you to see the spiritual fulfillment of us in the church through Jesus Christ. And because if you get a hold of that, you will see how they're trying to take that and turn it into this carnal kingdom. You ought to read their description of the millennial kingdom. It isn't even spiritual. All they're doing is making lots of money and living prosperously and having animal sacrifices. How spiritual is that? Jesus on some throne over there. Listen, I'm going to tell you about my Jesus. And he's different from their Jesus. He's very different. Their Jesus is so small, he could sit on a throne in Jerusalem, Israel. My Jesus is so big that the earth is his footstool. Amen. And he's going to burn this place up when he comes back. Right. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Let's look at Israel. Let's look at Israel. I speak to all those that have been born again this morning and have the Spirit of God in your hearts and want to know the truth and want to love the Word of God and you believe what Jesus said about the Word of God when He said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life and millennial kingdoms, but they are they which testify of Me. Amen. The whole Bible is spiritual, and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We come to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and we read, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram. We're all the way to Abraham in Genesis 11, 27. You can hold those few pages of your Bible, and they cover 2,000 years. What men do we know about in those first 2,000 years? Name a few saints of God for me. Help me. Enos, Abel, Enoch, Noah. Any more? Maybe Seth? Very few. We're hardly told anything. We have 11 chapters. Three of them are dedicated to the flood. Three of them are dedicated to the creation of man and the fall of man. 
Hardly anything. But then along comes Genesis 11.27, and we see a name, Abram. God reached down and elected Abram in more ways than one. Not only was he a child of God to have a place in heaven and his name in the book of life forever and ever, but he also reached down and chose to reveal himself to Abram like to no other man. And so we have the beginning of the nation of Israel in Genesis 11, 27, with the calling of Abram. And you can read the verses there. I'm not going to take the time because they're well known that God called Abram to leave Mesopotamia, where he lived with his family, and to go into the land of Canaan. And Stephen will preach in Acts chapter 7 that Abraham heard that call, and Abraham went into the land of Canaan. God revealed himself to Abram. Look at chapter 12 and verse 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram, and said... Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. What I want to show is that God chose Abram to be the father of a great nation. And that great nation would be his church of the old covenant. By church I mean the congregation, the assembly of the old covenant. The people, the group of people that God chose to reveal himself to above all other peoples. And that was the nation of Israel. We could look at many other places here in Genesis where God appeared to Abraham. He was called the friend of God. When God would come down and discuss the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with a man, when God would come and meet Abram at the, tent, at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, that's a friend. That's a close relationship between God and Abram. We don't read anything like that before Abraham. But there were 2,000 years, brethren, 2,000 years, most of the world lying in wickedness, and a few saints. God destroyed the earth once during that 2,000 years with a flood. Now God made covenants with Abraham. Covenants are sure promises. We see in Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 1. There's so we could read many, but I'll just get this one. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Somebody will read that and say, See? See? There's God blessing those that bless the descendants of Abraham. We'll take care of that later, but I'll just say right now that the true seed of Abraham is, can someone help me? Jesus Christ. So simple. But it's not simple if you're reading any other version, is it? Galatians 3.16 says that the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but to thy seed, singular, which is Christ. And it goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3, And if you're Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promises. That is so simple. The promises to Abraham are realized by believers in Jesus Christ of the New Testament. 
Lots of promises given to Abraham. Well, now after Abraham came Isaac. Did God reveal himself to Isaac? Indeed. After Isaac came Jacob. Did God reveal himself to Jacob? Indeed. Changed his name to Israel. So we have the beginning of the nation of Israel. And when a man has 12 sons, that's a good beginning of a nation. And so Israel had 12 sons. And those 12 sons, there was a few... Two grandsons were substituted for a son to make way for the tribe of Levi, but so there were really 13, 14 names involved, but they made up the 12 tribes of Israel, and from them came a great nation. And God revealed himself to all of them. Now out of those 12 grandsons came a man named, came a man named Moses. And we've read about Moses recently when we studied that Jesus is Jehovah God. Right. We saw in Exodus chapter 3 that God revealed himself to Moses as I am that I am. A further revelation of himself to his people Israel. Did anyone else know in the world know that God was I am that I am? No one. Well, what about the Chinese? What about the Native Americans? What about anyone else living in the world? God didn't care. You say, that is so cruel. Well, look in your Bibles at the book of Amos. Toward the ends of your Old Testament. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Chapter 3. It's not cruel, it's truth. There's lots of churches with lots of preachers that only preach smooth things. Smooth preachers were known way back in Jeremiah. And they certainly are popular today. Everyone wants to hear smooth, politically correct things. Well, God discriminates because God makes choices and he chooses those whom he will love. He says of himself in Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And he goes on to describe how he was going to judge them. But the reason for his judgment was, I have blessed you so abundantly, why have you turned from me? You only. This is what I want to point out. Egypt was a great kingdom. At this time, the the Babylonians had had a great kingdom at the Tower of Babel. It had been dispersed. But of all the families of the earth, God chose Israel. Come to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's read a little further about that choice of God of electing national Israel. What I've tried to show so far is that There's more than one Israel in the Bible. The Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. Then in Romans 9.6 we saw they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So we have there, we're told plainly there's at least two. And then we saw that there are Jewish fables that New Testament ministers better beware of. And I'm warning you about some of them today. We've then come and seen that in the first 2,000 years of the world's existence, hardly anything... Hardly anything. But then God chose Abram 
The first time we see his name is Genesis eleven twenty seven, And from him has grown a great nation. And here's what God says about his choice of them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is the church in the wilderness. That is what it's called in Acts chapter 7. The church in the wilderness. The congregation of the Lord. God chose some people. They separ- he separated them from the rest of the world. And he came and revealed himself to them. He was their God and they were his people. And he established with them conditional covenants of if they would obey, then he would bless them. If they disobeyed, he would tear them in pieces. Those covenant descriptions can be found in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. But they're long chapters. We're not going to read them all. We're just going to look at a couple verses in a minute. It was this nation that God loved and blessed and kept for the next 2,000 years. Approximately. I'm only off by a few. It's very interesting how the Lord, for 2,000 years, it's taken up in just a couple of chapters, and then for 2,000 years, He deals with the nation of Israel. He sends them judges for 450 years. He sends them kings. He sends them into captivity. He recovers them back from captivity, fulfilling the prophecies of a recovering from captivity found in Isaiah and Jeremiah, which wrote before that recovery, and we're telling about it. And he blessed them for 2,000 years, and he was their God. But the, con- the covenant that he had with them was conditional, that if they did not obey, he would turn to be their enemy and would destroy them. Now I want to just pick, I just want to look at one of the promises God made to Israel to show you how that we are going to make a statement that all the promises made to Israel have been fulfilled... That's choice one. Number two, were were conditionally withdrawn because Israel did not keep the conditions for those promises. Or three, they are fulfilled spiritually in the New Testament church. All the promises made to Israel were fulfilled, were were conditionally withdrawn because Israel did not meet the conditions or they're fulfilled spiritually in the New Testament and in heaven. Let's just look at one. Genesis 13. Genesis 13. When Paul writes in Galatians 3.16 and 3.29 that the promises made to Abraham are our promises. Do you believe that? Amen. Do you really believe that? Yep. Amen. Do you really, really believe that? Mm-hmm. I won't say three reallys. When Paul writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, and if you're a believer in Christ then you are Abraham's seed, 
and heirs of the promises. Do you believe that? Amen. Do you really believe that? Amen. Then don't ever let anyone move you off it. Right. Because this is where Jewish fables come in. Because see, if all the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in believers that are in Christ Jesus, then it doesn't leave anything for physical Jews, does it? Not a thing. Because it says the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, and the seed is Christ. And if we're in Christ by faith, then we are the heirs of those promises. We wouldn't need another chapter in the Bible. And that's what Paul was hoping from writing Galatians. However, let's just look at one. Let's look at the most carnal one of all. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Is it, do, is it pretty plain? God promised Abraham himself personally all the land that he could see in all four directions of the compass and that he could walk to and fro in the length and breadth of it, that God would give it all to him and would give it to his seed forever. Schofield Reference Bible. From one Jew to other Jews. From C.I. Schofield to other Jews. On page 250, he has this note. The Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel entered the land of promise. It is important to see that the nation has never as yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. The words of a man that are put on the same page with the words of God, saying Israel has never had the land eternally, everlastingly, forever, and they have never had the whole land. Let's think about Abraham for a minute, because I want to save some time. Let's think about Abraham. When I get over to Acts, and remember, you should always read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, always. They didn't know what, the wisest of the Old Testament didn't know what they were talking about. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that. Even the prophets that wrote did not know what they were writing about, nor the times. You can go see that in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's come to the New Testament, look back. Stephen a deacon was able to take care of C.I. Schofield, because Stephen a deacon preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 7, in which he says that God never gave Abraham one foot of ground. Right. Do you know how true this is? Do you believe that? Amen. But I thought God said he would give him the land. 
Abraham didn't own not so much enough ground to put the sole of his foot on. In fact, when Sarah died, what did he have to do? He had to go buy a burial spot because he didn't own any property. There's an entire chapter of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 23. An entire chapter of the Bible going through the financial transaction for 400 pieces of silver to buy a burial plot for Sarah because Abraham didn't own any land. Because, but God said that he would give him the land. So let's think about that. God said he would give him the land, but Abraham never had the land. But you know what? I come to Hebrews chapter 11, and you know what the Bible tells us? Brethren, this is the New Testament. Right. Opening your eyes to the truth to save you from Jewish fables. Do you know what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about Abraham? He didn't want the land. Right. And he understood God didn't mean the land. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. We need to look at it. It's too good. It's so simple. Our children can understand this. They can have all the prophetic conferences they want and have dispensationalists get up and chop the Bible in pieces. And they can sell as many Oxford editions of the Schofield Reference Bible as they want with notes like what I read to you. But the truth is... Abraham himself never got the land, and Abraham didn't want the land. And Abraham didn't understand God to even mean the land. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now wait a minute. I thought God promised that he would give them the land. Did God promise he would give them the land? Yes, he did. But it says they died in faith, not having received the promises. Well, did God not keep his promise? Or are we supposed to use a little tiny bit of intelligence and figure out that because the Bible is a spiritual book, there is a better fulfillment than some little piece of desert sand over there on the south coast of the Mediterranean Sea? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They saw the fulfillment of the promises afar off and were persuaded of them. That's faith. It believes what God has said. And it's persuaded of them and embraced them. Do you know what embrace means? This is the fulfillment Abraham wanted. He embraced it. What a wonderful promise. And you know what? He never owned any land and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Does that sound like someone excited about a promise of land? Confessing that we're strangers and pilgrims? We don't want anything in this world. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. But they were in the country of Canaan. Why does Schofield and all the rest want to restore the land of Canaan a thousand years from now? In the future sometime, in some millennium. Christians don't want such a country. Jewish lovers do want such a country because they're still believing Jewish fables. Just like the Israelites were in the days of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, and the Apostles Paul spent their ministries trying to refute the ideas of the Pharisees that the Jews had some preeminent kingdom coming. Jesus said, my kingdom doesn't come with observation. My kingdom is within you. 
Anyway, I'm getting off the track. I want to come back and read here. Listen, Abraham was in the country, but he didn't want it. He was still looking for a country. They were seeking a country, and they declare it plainly. Is this plain? Abraham didn't want the land. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. I mean, if they were really looking for a country, they could have gone back home and had what was there with a deed entitled Abraham back in Mesopotamia. But now they desire a better country. That better country. Can you hear that, brethren? There's a better country than Canaan. Why can't they hear that? Because they're carnal. All they can see is the physical, earthly, temporal things, and they're missing the spiritual, eternal, heavenly things. They desire a better country, that is, in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city, and that city is the city of the living God that we read about in Hebrews chapter 12. It's heaven. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. Now do you hear me? God said to Abraham, walk the length of it, walk the breadth of it, look northward, eastward, southward, westward, I'll give it to you, I am going to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to your seed forever. Abraham never owned a piece of ground, I'm going over this because you better know it. Abraham didn't own enough ground to put the sole of his foot on, he had to buy it, God didn't give it to him, he had to buy it for a burial place for Sarah. Because he didn't want that land. He never thought of that land. He knew God didn't intend that land. He was looking at heaven. It's a better country. It's a city that God's built. I don't know. It can't be any plainer. can't be any simpler. Little children can understand that. That Abraham saw all right through those words about land to a heavenly country that was a better country. He embraced that promise. He loved that promise. That promise meant everything to him, that God had revealed himself to him of all men on planet earth and said, I give you, I'm going to give you heaven. Now come over in your Bibles to Joshua. Now I could multiply witnesses on the point that I'm about to make. I could multiply them for a while, but I'm going to give you two or three. Mr. Schofield said that God did not keep his promise. God has not fulfilled his promise yet by giving the land unconditionally forever. That's what he said. The unconditional Abrahamic covenant forever. Guess what? We just showed that he has. Is heaven unconditional? And is heaven forever? He fulfilled the whatever. Mr. Schofield wants to call the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. He fulfilled it with heaven. It's what Abraham understood it to be. It's what Abraham wanted. It's what God intended. And God has indeed kept his word. Amen. There is heaven reserved. There is a, there, heaven is reserved for Abraham and his seed forever. And it is obtained unconditionally. God gives it by inheritance. Right. It is our eternal inheritance to which we have been predestinated. Is that all that simple? Amen. Now. He says, Israel never obtained the whole land. That's why they want you to send money off to mission for the Jews. That's why they want, these so-called Christians want our government to bail out that little God-forsaken, corrupt little country over there called Israel. You know, if it wasn't for the Americans feeding them and arming them, they'd already be pushed into the Mediterranean Sea by the Arabs. But they want you to send your money over there. Because... God never gave them all the land. Therefore, 
God is someday in the future going to give them all the land. Therefore, they must still be God's people. Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. Say, what, you, what got you on this subject, Pastor? Early in this week, I ran into some Plymouth brethren. I had forgot they even existed. Plymouth brethren. Who are they? They're Darbyites. They're those people that J.N. That Darby got excited in England and Scotland between 1830 and 1880. They're the ones that have promoted all this stuff. If it wasn't for the little Scottish lass, Margaret MacDonald, if it wasn't for Darby, and if it wasn't for Schofield, no one would know about it. No one had ever dreamed of it. No one had ever heard of it. This dual coming of Jesus Christ and seven-year tribulation? Mm-mm. A carnal, national, Jewish re- restoration in Canaan? Never. Maybe a conversion of the Jews. There might have been some people misled on that point and thought there'd be some latter-day conversion of the Jews, but never a physical restoration of the nation of Israel in Canaan to live a thousand years with animal sacrifices? Are you kidding me? That's so pagan and corrupt and blasphemous, no one had thought of it, not even in the Catholic Church. And then I was studying in Acts, which I'm going to be preaching to you, but I, the Lord led me, after running into these Plymouth brethren, led me, showed me that in the very first chapter of Acts, we've still got disciples believing Jewish fables. Right. In the sixth verse, mm-hmm. the disciples take Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6 and say, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See what men can think when they're not under the influence of the Holy Ghost? That's why two verses later Jesus says, Stay here in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Because if Peter would have started preaching in verse 6, who knows what we would have heard. The Lord had to open his mind and fill his heart with the Holy Ghost because then when you get to Acts chapter 2, guess where he's putting the Lord Jesus Christ? on the throne of David, seated in, seated in heaven. Guess what? Schofield doesn't think he's there yet. Right. But a man under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost told us plainly. But that's why I ran to the Plymouth Brethren early in the week, and then the Lord just put, took Acts 1-6 right out of the page and said, Look, even the disciples couldn't keep it straight. And so that's why I'm trying to teach you, because I want you established. You are going to hear this everywhere. Israel never got the whole land. Therefore, they've got to get it sometime in the future, or God hasn't kept His promises. Well, the first thing we looked at is that unconditional promise forever. That your seed would have it forever, that is heaven. Abraham understood it and stated it plainly. Now, the whole land, all the dimensions. Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. Does it need interpretation? I don't think so. Come to Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21. I am belaboring this point because it's a simple one for you to ever use if you run into one of these mixed-up dispensationalists. You can go right to Schofield's note or or ask them, has Israel received the land? Or take them to Genesis 13 and punish them with it. Take them to Genesis 13 and say, look it, God promised Abraham the land forever. 
He hasn't kept that yet, has he? And they'll say, no. And then just take him to Hebrews 11 and point out that he has given it to him forever. Because it's a heavenly country, a better country. Joshua 21, verse 43. Joshua 21, 43. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers. Who's one of their fathers? Who's another? Who's another? Okay, we got the fathers down. Let me read it again. You might have misunderstood it because it's hard. It's deep. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it and dwelt therein. Now the Holy Ghost knows that verse 43 isn't enough if you're thick. So we get verse 44. We praise for those. Amen. Who cares what this man says? Let me tell you what God says about C.I. Schofield. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the prophets. Amen. If they speak not according to this word, it is because no there is no light in them. Amen. He was promoting Jewish fables because he was a Jew. Jewish fables. Israel hasn't got the land. The Bible tells us they did get the land. I could multiply those witnesses, by the way, several times. They're recorded throughout. 1 Kings 8.56, Nehemiah 9, 7 and 8, and other places will tell you they got the whole land. And so it was fulfilled. The thing we were looking at is the election of physical Israel. Did God choose a nation? and choose to be their God, and they would be his people. Indeed, he did. Abraham was their father, and that nation lasted for 2,000 years approximately, from 2,000 years B.C. up until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. But now we want to come to the point that God rejected that nation for being his nation. He rejected them and destroyed them utterly and left them desolate forever and ever. Look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. We want to notice that the promises made to Israel were conditional. If you do this and serve me, then I will bless you. If you will not do this and serve me, then I will destroy you. This this church, this church of the wilderness, was based on a conditional covenant. Do and live. Do and get blessings. Don't do and get judged. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Did God promise to set Israel up into a position of preeminence? Indeed. And it was conditional, if you'll obey and keep my commandments. But then we come to verse 15. And here's the division in the chapter. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And you can read and read and read about the curses that were going to come upon Israel if they would reject him. Because 
The, Bible, the rule of the Bible is, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And when God chose a nation, and set them up above all the peoples of the earth, and chose them, and knew them, and revealed himself to them, and blessed them, and delivered them, and destroyed nations on their behalf, if they turned their back on him, he was going to tear them to pieces for squandering and rebelling against such blessings. Oh, I want to chase a rabbit bad on that one. Oh, I want to chase it so bad. But I'm not... Oh, It's Second Peter 2, 1, but I'm not going there. It'll get us off track. If you're ever wondering what it means when it says, even denying the Lord that bought them in Second Peter 2, 1, I just gave you the answer to it. Right. Come over to Matthew chapter 21. Did Israel keep the conditions? Did Israel keep the... Was Israel a good nation? Are you kidding me? How many times did he have to judge them and chasten them and beat them and oppress them? Did he haul them off into captivity once? Did he bring them back? Did they still rebel? Yes. Did he send his servants? Did he send his prophets? Did he finally send his son? What did they do to his son? Killed him. him. Matthew 21, the parable of the householder. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Here another parable, verse 33, there was a certain householder. Who is that? That is the Lord God, which planted a vineyard. What's that? The nation of Israel. And hedged it round about, and digged a wine press in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. That vineyard with the husbandmen, the wine press, and the tower, and all those blessings, the nation of Israel. And he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that he, they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Who are these servants? Prophets. Prophets. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. Who are those servants? More prophets and the apostles, John the Baptist. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. Question. When the Lord, therefore of the vineyard cometh, when the God of Israel cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, and they were good at at picking this, the answer to this question, weren't they? They give a great answer to this question. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their season. He will take the nation from Israel and give it to some other people who will appreciate his blessings. Pharisees answered that. Verse 41 is the Pharisees speaking. 
They answered the question correctly. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? This was taught in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The reason there's a question mark there is Jesus is asking, Have you ever read this? Verse 43, Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived, and rightly so, that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. Even though the Pharisees understood that this was about them, did they drop to their knees and beg for forgiveness? Did they repent and lay hold of the feet of Jesus and say, I will not let you go until you bless us? No, they tried to kill him. But I want you to notice, we should be able to close our Bibles, shouldn't we? Matthew 21 and verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The nation is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the citizens of that nation. And I will continue to establish and show you that this day. We, this day, offered up fruits thereof. We came into this place and we thanked and we blessed and we prayed and we praised and we sang praise to the Lord Jesus Christ for his kingdom. We are offering him fruits. The kingdom was transferred 2,000 years ago. And as we read in Hebrews 12, it isn't going for it. There isn't another transfer. He's shaking the heavens and the earth right here so that things which can be moved can float away, which was the Jewish way of things, so that a kingdom which cannot be moved will remain. We read that this morning, Hebrews 12, 22 through 29. And we have that kingdom. Jesus Christ and God his Father rejected the nation of Israel. Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Verse 31. Matthew 23, 31. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Because they had just told Jesus that if they had lived back there, they wouldn't have killed the prophets. And Jesus said, you're the children of those that did it. Verse 32, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, the apostles of the New Testament, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation." All the righteous blood of your Old Testament. The last martyr in your Old Testament is Zacharias, son of Berechias. And the first martyr is Abel. 
And Abel was at the front end of the 2,000 years before Abraham. But God took all that righteous blood and stuck it on that generation. And do you know what? They presumptuously said, let it be on us. And he said in verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now that doesn't sound like a millennial kingdom to me. First of all, there couldn't be a millennial kingdom because we are the last kingdom. Remember, we're the kingdom which cannot be moved. There is no other kingdom. Jesus took the kingdom from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles and a few converted Jews that were with them, which we'll see. Chapter 24, just turn the page a couple verses. Here are the disciples with another Jewish fable, showing him how impressive the temple was. And Jesus said in verse 2, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus Christ there promised to throw the stones of that temple down and not leave two, one upon the other. And when was he going to do this? Verses 34 and 35, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Verse 35 is not a text defending preservation of the Word of God. Verse 35 is a verse showing that the Word of Jesus Christ is true. And that if someone would just sit and wait for 40 years, they would see everything in Matthew 24 fulfilled. Because Jesus said it would be. Of course, C.I. Schofield, Darby, and little lass Margaret McDonald didn't see it that way. Because they saw all of Matthew 24, yet in the future for us, 2,000 years later. But Jesus said, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. Same thing he said in 23. Very comparable to what John the Baptist said, now is the axe laid to the root of the tree. Now is what he said. The old covenant passed away. Hebrews 8.13 In that he saith new, Paul says, Jeremiah called the covenant of the new, the covenant of Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And he says in Hebrews 8.13, this is the Apostle Paul reasoning, in that he saith new, he must mean that the covenant that went before is old, And if something is old, you just wad it up and throw it away. That's Hebrews 8.13. I'm not trying to be... I want you to see how simple it is and how Paul reasons. That is is Hebrews 8.13. In that he saith new, the other covenant has now got a name. It's old. And if it's a covenant that's old, it's no longer in force. It's gone. Throw it away. It's passing away. Right. Remember the shaking of heaven and earth in Hebrews 12? It said, the heavens and the earth are shaken so that things which are not secure will float away. It's like shaking a rug. When the Lord shook the rug of the heaven and the earth, what flew off in the form of dust? The Jewish way of things. The physical nation of Israel. What was left? The spiritual nation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that Mount Zion, that city of the living God, the company of angels, the spirits of just men made perfect that we just read about. 
So we come over to Philippians chapter 3, and what would Paul say about the Jews? Philippians chapter 3. This is not an exhaustive study. For anyone listening to this tape, there is much more that can be said, and there's much more that has been said, and we'd be happy to help you find the much more that has been said from this church and other places if you're interested. Philippians chapter 3. What was the grand symbol of the Jewish nation that they were different? Circumcision. Was it important to them? Very. Did God make it important to them? Yes. Was every male child to be circumcised at eight days of age? Yes. Was it the one sign that a person was a Jew instead of a Gentile? Was it one sign that this was God's man? You're part of God's country, God's nation. Circumcision. Listen to Paul. And the reason Paul can say this is because of what we just read in Matthew and referred to in Hebrews 8 and 12. There's much more that we're going to look at, but I just want to show you this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Beware of dogs. Now that isn't very kind either for false teachers, is it? Beware of dogs. Do you think he was warning that you ought to beware of those four-legged carnivores that some people keep as pets? He's referring to gospel preachers that are teaching lies. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now this is notable. This is notable. Beware of the concision. Was the Apostle Paul a Jew? Was he an Israelite of the Israelites? A Hebrew of the Hebrews? Indeed he was. He says, beware of the concision. Now, if he had said, beware of the circumcision, would you have understood him? He would have been meaning, beware of those Judaizing Jews that were out to ruin the Gentile converts. But he didn't say, beware of the circumcision. Because he's derogatorily humiliating them. He's saying, beware of the concision. I dare you to go home and look up the word concision. They'll help you to find it if you've got a good dictionary from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. It means the mutilators. Beware of the mutilators. Now how much emphasis do you think Paul's putting on circumcision with that word? Beware of the concision. Circumcision is, circum means cutting around in a circle. Concision with cutting. All they are are mutilators. The precise synonym for concision is mutilators. Beware of the mutilators. That is how respectful Paul is of those people and their grand symbol. And then he says this in verse 3, and this is the whole crux of the matter, and this is where we're going to end this morning. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Jews don't do any one of those three things. They do not worship God in the Spirit. 
They worship God with a carnal altar. They do not rejoice in Christ Jesus. They crucified Him. They do have confidence in the flesh because they put all their confidence in Abraham as our father. And you, you know what Jesus said, and we'll look at that. If Abraham were your father, you'd love me and you'd listen to me. But Abraham isn't your father. Ye are of your father, the devil. So that we'll come to Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, where Jesus Christ will say that people that worship in a synagogue are of the synagogue of Satan. Right. And he says of them, they say they are Jews, but they are not. This is Revelation 3, 9. And I will cause those people that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because their house was left to them desolate, and Jesus Christ was blessing the New Testament church. We are the circumcision. Brethren, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. That means that we have the symbol of citizenship. And our citizenship is in the Israel of God, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. The reformed Israel of God, opened up to the Gentiles, which we'll look at more fully tonight. But we're the circum- we are the circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit. We've done it this morning. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and we have no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. If it be not of Jesus Christ and by his blood, as we've prayed and sang this morning, we have no hope. But we have plenty, because the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us and given us an everlasting kingdom in which we can worship him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I hope that you can see in the 6,000 years that the world's existed how God has looked down and found a people for himself, and it's you and me. We're the true Israel of God. And we are most blessed, and we ought to be most thankful for it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.